Welcome to Future Charlotte, the podcast where we talk to the people who are shaping the future of our city. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. So we are talking today with John Holmes, an urbanist in Charlotte, a man about Twitter, and a person who's really doing some interesting things in the city right now. John, thanks for taking the time. Eli, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, tell me about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get into urbanism in Charlotte? Oh, man. Uh, So I am a former Marine. So I served from 2013 to 2017. Uh, I was stationed over at Camp Lejeune. I really enjoyed it, but it was just one of those things where I wanted to do something else with my life at that point. So I had been visiting Charlotte pretty frequently to fall in love with the city. So when it was time for me to get out of the service, I set my roots down in Charlotte, uh, went to UNC Charlotte and graduated with a bachelor's in history and German. And I, I really enjoyed the program and it really kind of helped me tie me to the city a bit more. And, you know, when I graduated, which was literally right at the onset of the COVID 2020 pandemic, it was one of those things where, okay, I got to take a bit of a break, got to figure out what the next move is, what's something that I can really kind of focus in on. And, you know, the more and more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, I really love this city, but why do I love it so much? What makes it that special for me? And so that's when I kind of started pursuing, you know, some interests in urban studies. And I would read like a lot of books on the subject. I remember I read Street Fight. That was a really good one. Uh, Strong Towns. And I really liked that one too. And then Happy City uh, by Charles Montgomery. That was a great book that really kind of opened my eyes to, hey, you know, there's all these different things that we can do with Charlotte. You know, how do we go from there? And that's that's kind of how I came about it. Um, in terms of some of the stuff I'm doing right now, so I, I accidentally helped start this uh, activism group called the Charlotte Urbanists. And, you know, we have a lot of projects that we do throughout the city. Um, we've done some traffic calming down in South End. That was a really popular project and really cheap. I think we did it with maybe like $30 worth of supplies. And the really big one that's showing up in the media right now is the bench project. We're currently doing the Charlotte Urbanist bus bench seating project. We had a lot of people go out to these bus stops, you know, place some QR stickers with some surveys attached to them and just let us know, hey, do you need a seat here? And we would build a bench, make sure it was up to the ADA standards that we had seen specified and just go out and place in there for whenever people had needed them. So I feel like you've kind of really fallen into this and have a, a flair for it. You know, there's been a lot of attention on uh, the bus bench project. And another part of your story is Chick-fil-A and the or the drive through only Chick-fil-A uh, proposals and what happened there. So can you kind of just take us through uh, that part of your story? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, uh, more than happy to. It, so I was finding work during the pandemic. You know, the biggest thing that kind of came available was Chick-fil-A. I, you know, I really enjoyed it, too, because they do make a good point of hiring people that care about the work. And when you work with people that care, that makes it that much better. So I, you know, worked my way up to eventually become like one of the bigger managers there. The position was senior operations director, and I would just manage the PM side of the business as much as I could and take care of everything. But, you know, you're reading all this stuff about, hey, you know, this is kind of a harmful business model to cities. This is something that, you know, does potentially contribute to, you know, an increase on car ownership and car priorities instead of like, you know, pedestrian safety and, you know, 
serving pedestrians and making sure that it can actually fit. And when I was working at Chick-fil-A, it was one of those things where I was trying to do the best that I could to, okay, you know, how can we make this a more pedestrian friendly business model? So I would talk to the operator and I would propose all these things like, Hey, you know, we don't have a bike rack here. Uh, can we get one installed? And, you know, to his credit, the store owner, Hal Queen, he did buy a bike rack and had plans to get it installed. We also talked about, hey, you know, a lot of these places that you're serving to, they're only 10 minutes away. And you're talking about having, you know, a delivery service for some of these catering orders. We could easily do this with an electric cargo bicycle. The maintenance isn't that much. You know, why don't we consider it? And, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the table about, hey, this is how Chick-fil-A can actually operate in like an urban area without just completely bulldozing everything and making it super car heavy, which is why when I saw, okay, you know, the city council had voted to approve a Chick-fil-A in another part of the city to become drive-thru only, I got pretty upset about it. I think the biggest thing was, you know, when you were at that restaurant, they do advocate that you need to be as much of a good steward as possible. And, you know, if you are being in a transit oriented development location and you are trying your best to be a good steward of the area you're in, asking the city, hey, I know you guys have this huge plan for this, you know, big transit development, but we actually want to go in an entirely different way. And, you know, I know it's going to conflict with what you guys have planned, but we're going to do this. That doesn't seem like good stewardship to me whatsoever. So I got mad about it. Uh, I was very vocal critic about the whole thing. I said that this was kind of a huge sellout um, on the city council's part. And, you know, it was one of those things where some of the employees I worked with, they saw it. Some of the coworkers I had that were like also managers, they saw it. And pretty quickly, it uh, got shared to the store owner. So I came in the next day and, you know, he pulled me to the side. Hey, what's this about? I'm like, well, you know, I'm just not a fan of what happened with this. And he said, you know, you can't be using this kind of language in regards to the brand. Um, and you can't be saying this kind of stuff, you know, with the employees that we have, you know, a manager here at Chick-fil-A cannot be critiquing the brand this like, you know, much. So I'm sorry, I'm just gonna have to let you go. And, you know, just like that, 15 minutes before my shift, like the day after I wrote a social media post of all things. Uh, I got fired, <laughs> which, you know, that, that kind of sucks because I don't know if you guys know, but like my wife was at that time, five months pregnant. So, you know, I remember like coming in and I had to tell my wife like, okay, Hey, sorry, I got to break some bad news to you. I just got fired. So. I assume the next thing was for what? And you had to say, well, it was Charlotte urbanism, Twitter related. <laughs> which yeah. is uh, not, not a typical reason for a firing. No. Yeah. And it was, it was really insane. I didn't even post it on Twitter at that point. What I did was just a little, a little quiet, like Facebook post. you know, only my friends could see it. And when the store owner like in front of me about it, I was like, okay, well, you know, I can understand if you don't want me to like write this, do you want me to delete it? And he said, no. And so I was like, okay, well, you know what? That's totally fine. Um, and you're going to fire me. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll take that as well. So I remember like I came back and I was like, okay, you know what? This is like, just pardon the language, but this is just kind of BS at this point. So I like, you know, went on Twitter and I was like, you know what? I just got fired for this thing. This kind of blows. But at this point, if you're going to fire me for how I went about this, I don't really regret it. You know, 
especially with the fact that like okay you know this is like such a small political issue that you're gonna fire me for something that petty hey if you want to do that, that that's totally fine that's that's on your conscience what happened after that because i know you got a lot of attention from it and people were really you know i think the story resonated with people because there's a lot of people who complain about different things traffic drive-through lines whatever it might be uh but you did something about it and, and faced some consequences yeah and you know i think the thing that like really so what happened was uh, i think his name is clayton he runs the charlotte development page mm-hmm. he just reshared uh the tweet and it started to really blow up from there and you know it was really probably one of the more heartening moments I've had living in this city. I've, I've gone through a lot of stuff um, since I've moved to Charlotte in 2017 and consistently throughout the people have always been just the biggest part about what I love about the city. And this whole event really like highlighted that I had so many people reaching out to me to say, Hey, I really appreciated that you did this. Thank you so much for standing up for your beliefs. Thank you, much. Thank you so much for trying to fight for this city to be better. And I had people trying to give me job opportunities. I had people trying to, you know, send me cash, which was like, okay, hey, you know, like, that's cool. Like, I don't need it now, but, you know, like maybe send it to someone else that might need it. And it was just a huge thing of, all right, yeah, you had all these people rallying just to try and help out a complete stranger that they had never met. And, you know, if that doesn't say anything about the character of like, you know, most of Charlotte's citizens, I I don't know what else you can say. It's just a really big honor to have these people and be in their good graces. Well, you know, after all of that, there became like a lot of attention for me. And it was one of the things where it's like, okay, well, you know, I can either just kind of let this be like a one note thing, or I can try and use this to actually enact some goodwill. And so what I would try and do is like, okay, you know, there's a couple of groups in the area. Maybe I should start trying to promote them since they have this attention on me. And it was like, you know, so I'd promote stuff from, you know, the trips for kids, Charlotte recyclery, or, you know, Hey, there's this, you know, nonprofit charity event going on. You guys should check this out or, Hey, you know, here are some other issues in the community. But then the really big thing that kind of fell into it was I saw this group on meetup and it was with a person that I had talked to, you know, infrequently, his name is Jacob. And I thought to myself, okay, you know what, let me go ahead and attend this meetup. Let me promote the meetup as well. And I went in like the middle of January, freezing. And, you know, it originally started with just like six people. We met at Freedom Park and it was just, it's insane how the whole thing has kind of progressed because we met up, we talked about, hey, here are some of the projects we want to work on. Here are some of the plans. Um, what do we value? Walkability was a big one. Uh, you know, public spaces, um, transit friendliness also other sorts of things too but we kind of just sat together and we're like okay we don't have much people we don't have any resources but this is what we want to do and you know ever since then it it really has kind of taken off in like the best way possible i'm curious about the role of social media and networking online and uh the role that that plays in the story because you know there's a version of this that happens uh, a generation ago where you don't find those people, you don't connect, but now we're in this networked world and, you know, I spend too much time on Twitter <laughs> and see, um, you know, that's how I actually got to, got to meet uh, Clayton of CLT development as well a long time ago. And I know for people who are on Twitter a lot, there's a lot of Charlotte urbanism discussions. And for people who aren't, sometimes it feels like um, a different world, but 
tell me, I don't know, what do you think of the role that that all plays in this story and in this city's growth now? Oh my gosh. Social media is a huge way of reaching out to people, especially in a city that is as sprawled out as Charlotte. Uh, So, I mean, it all depends on what kind of social media outlet you're using as well. So for instance, Facebook, yeah, yeah, you can kind of get a good social outreach for it, but it's really for people that already know you, already know about your page is what we have found. Um, Reddit, you know, if you're consistently having that discussion and you're promoting yourself on some of the bigger subreddits, yeah, you can easily get some good followings and some good attention for some of those items. You just have to be careful making sure that the topic is presented the right way. Like for instance, the, uh, the parking free apartment that came about, you know, it, yeah, that was a whole mixed bag on Reddit that really kind of did not do too well. But when we talked about the bench project in Reddit, that blew up pretty well. Uh, we had a lots of good feedback as well. And we got some followers as a result of, the social media outreach we did on Reddit. But then Twitter is Twitter is great. I, I really love Twitter, especially for discussing, you know, Charlotte Urbanist topics and then kind of meeting with all these different people and outreaching with them. You meet a lot of fantastic people on Twitter. Um, and it's one of those things where however it's set up, it has a great algorithm where it just helps you meet other people that are also like-minded with that. But it's not enough just to post about something or write about something. You have to actually go out and do a lot of stuff. And I think that's the big thing that I've noticed with some other like social media movements is, hey, you can tweet out something, but if you're not actually doing something, that momentum gets stalled out pretty quickly. So what we've done is we've made a huge point to make sure that people are aware of these issues, but also come up with actual projects to work on them. And we do a lot of networking with Twitter as well to try and reach out. It's like, Hey, we noticed that you're talking about all these different things. This is something that we can definitely like talk about and try and work together on. Let's meet up some time and talk. And we kind of use that to funnel into like any future projects that we have. Uh, For instance, we are proposing a future group ride to help raise awareness for the high pedestrian fatalities that we have here in the city. We have to meet up with people in person and get them to organize other people in person and do all these things. But we find out about them on Twitter and we reach out to them on Twitter. And yeah, Twitter is easily one of the better platforms if you're trying to do anything for a social activism movement. But the one thing I want to stress is you have to get out there. It's not enough just to like make those connections. You have to get out there. Well, let's talk about getting out there some more. Tell me about a little more detail about the work you're doing now, what you've done recently, and how it's been received. Yeah, so the big project that we've been doing right now is the Charlotte Urbanist Bench Project. And for that one, everyone loves it. Yeah, it was initially, we had a couple trial runs where we would install a bench in a part of the city um, where someone had requested it. You know, it was just donated church furniture that we had like placed. See how people respond to it on social media, see how people respond to it in the survey. And without a doubt, like everyone has loved the bench project. It's just such a simple, you know, non intrusive like item that you can place anywhere throughout the city um, when people need it. And people like it. It's nice to have a seat. It's nice to know, hey, you know, you're not a nuisance in this part of the city. Like you are welcomed here go on, take a seat, you know, rest yourself for a bit as much as you can. And I think the thing is, it's like, the more we do this, the more public support we tend to get, which, you know, when you have a moment where, you know, we brush up against like NCDOT, you know, when we talk about, hey, this is why 
this department isn't too thrilled about this, or this is, you know, this result we've had. People are insanely supportive about it. And I think that the bus question or the bus bench project raises an interesting question for me, which is, you know, I live um, in Southeast Charlotte, uh, not too far from Matthews and driving around, I'll often see covered bus stop with a bench that looks great. uh, And then a few blocks away, literally just, you know, a sign sticking out of some weedy patch next to uh, a major road. And the message, you know, is really off-putting if you just see that a bus sign sticking out of a patch of weeds. Why do you think we don't just build better bus stops in the first place everywhere? So this is actually a really good question. And it's one of those things that we met up with cats recently and we had a whole host of discussions about, hey, you know, this is why we're doing this bus project. What is the city doing about it? What is cats doing about it? And the unfortunate reality is that cats is having to brush up against a lot of different issues when it comes to their bus stops. Uh, one of them is the legacy bus stop. So for instance, say we have a bus stop that's next to the railroad that was, you know, installed maybe in like, you know, the 1980s or something like that. You know, that railroad may not have been there um, or that sidewalk may not have been there or that four lane highway may not have been there. And you start having this thing where because cats hasn't really updated the bus system that much, you have these old legacy stops where you just can't do some of the projects that you want to like, when we talked to Jason Lawrence, for instance, we asked him, um, why is it that, you know, some of these bus stops just do not have seating? And he highlighted that, well, okay, if we were to install seating here, we'd have to install this other thing. But unfortunately, it would conflict with this one requirement by the railroad that owns the property right next to it, and they could easily shut it down. Okay, you know, that's a possible thing where, you know, the legacy stop kind of like prevents it. But then the other aspect of it as well is that they not only have to figure out how to make it ADA compliant, but they also have to spend a good amount of money um, on the benches themselves. Uh, Ms. Paige Myden from Charlotte Observer, she reached out to me and she informed me that the average bus stop, uh, if you want to install seating here in Charlotte, costs anywhere from $20,000 to $40,000. That's an insane amount of money just for one bus stop. And if the city is as sprawled out as it is with a lot of bus stops as well, that's just, that's just going to deplete cats that much more. So the other item as well that we kind of ran into is that, you know, when you're working with, you know, Charlotte DOT, North Carolina DOT, you know, Mecklenburg County, and, you know, just the state as well, you run into a lot of different and sometimes conflicting priorities. For instance, when we talked to North Carolina DOT, they gave us this whole, whole rundown about, hey, you know, if you want to install a bench here, these are the criteria you have to meet for the North Carolina road. Um, here's some of the items you have to, you can install a bench here, but it has to be a breakaway bench because, you know, if a car collides into it, we want to make sure that the motors isn't hurt, which that seems to be a weird priority to have if someone's sitting on the bench, but you know, there's all sorts of stuff that you're just having to work with. And so the unfortunate reality is that currently right now, CATS is underfunded. It's having to deal with a huge host of sprawling issues and it's having to basically fight with three different departments. So I think you highlighted two different underlying themes in there that I want to dig into in turn. The first is we are often looking at projects with really high price tags, um, whether it's for you know new transit lines, purchasing 
you know, new fleets of electric buses or building protected bike lanes. And, you know, that can be a deterrent. But I think one thing that you're doing and you're showing is sometimes there are cheaper, quicker options that are, you know, 90% as good. You can just go out and put a bench somewhere um, as you've done. And, you know, when I think about the cost of making multi-use paths and things like that, sometimes I'm, I'm wondering, man, what if we just put down some gravel? What do you think of that kind of uh, tension between the Cadillac option and the, the good enough option, the Ford Fusion option? <laughs> it definitely like those comparisons. I think the reality is that the good enough option, that's going to work for so many more people. And, you know, a nice concrete pad, a nice concrete bench, a nice shelter. That's great. Yeah, I would love to see more of those. But at the same time, that doesn't solve the immediate issue. People need a seat. People need roads that are more traffic calmed. People need pop-up bike lanes that can be easily achieved with traffic cones. And, you know, the good enough approach, there's a reason it's good enough. If, if you can get, you know, your target met 95% of the time, that's great. You know, that, that, that's really good. And I think the thing is we have to kind of understand, you know, Tactical urbanism is a really great way to highlight, hey, the things that we want, they do not have to have this high price tag attached to them. If I really, really wanted to, for the price of $200, I could easily introduce a pop-up bike lane on Central Avenue. And that would be great. You know, People would love that. People want protected bike lanes. The issue that they kind of balk at is the cost of it. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, the costs of, hey, you know, this protected bike lane costs X amount million per mile. Uh, you know, I think the really big question we kind of have to ask ourselves is, well, you know, there's money here. It's just being misspent on other projects right now. We can talk about that later. But again, the big thing is you just really need to understand that these improvements do not have to cost thousands or, you know, millions of dollars. They can be cost the city literally in the hundreds and be done. And the other thing that you were mentioning is just how many um, cooks are in the kitchen when you talk about solutions like this. You know, in, in my reporting, I've seen just the alphabet soup of agencies you have to uh, deal with, whether it's NCDOT, CRTPO, CDOT, CMPD, CATS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as you've kind of dug into this world a bit, um, has that surprised you? What's your, what's your reaction been to just seeing how many different people and different requirements there are to, to do even pretty basic things sometimes? Well, coming from the military background and then also um, dipping my toes here in the MPA program here at UNC Charlotte is not surprising at all. Uh, I think the reality is that there are a lot of different you know, institutions and organizations that have competing priorities and you have to work with all of them. That, that's the, the plain fact about public work is, you know, you live in a democracy, there's going to be a lot of different competing parties to work with. Um, it's definitely not surprising, but I think the thing is just because it's not surprising to me, doesn't mean that, you know, other people know about it. The more awareness that you can raise on, uh, the issue and the more names you can put out there on, Hey, you know, this is someone you can contact. This is someone you can follow up with. This is the department that is having this particular issue. Here's what we can possibly do to make that easier for them. I mean, the better that works out for most people. 
if, if more people have an understanding on how the system works, more people can press those buttons and try and make it work better for the rest of the population. So let's talk now about uh, some other ways to do that, including uh, bike infrastructure and the way we need to think about that. Uh, what do you think from your perspective uh, as a, a frequent bike rider in this city and, and someone who's doing it not just for pleasure, but to uh, commute, what's our discussion missed so far and what do we need to improve, especially in terms of uh, East Charlotte, your, your side of town? Oh, yeah. East Charlotte has, I think, maybe th- two bicycle lanes. Um, and I just want to be clear, too. When I refer to East Charlotte, I'm just talking about, you know, W.T. Harris, Almar Road, you know, Central Avenue. Those, those are the big ones for me. Um, so when I talk about, like, East Charlotte, they have actually three bike lanes. They're unprotected. They're painted onto the roadway. And hardly anyone uses them like whatsoever. And I think the issue that we can either know is that, you know, bike lanes, they are a thing of equity. When we look at the statistics, we typically see that the majority of people that get hit on their bicycle um, or even pedestrians, they are African-American, they are Native American, they are immigrants in this community. And, you know, they're also tend to be low income earners, such as myself. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, okay, if this city does value equity, it needs to actually invest in the bike lanes. So, you know, you cannot just have roadways and streets set up for people that are rich enough to have a car. Um, same thing with our transit system as well. I think the other thing as well is that we need to understand that, okay, you know, this stuff does not cost as much as we think it does. Yeah, a mile might cost like a million dollars, but when you look at, say, the I-485 expansion, which is hundreds of million dollars, Okay, you know, let's dig into that. Hundreds of millions of dollars for a highway expansion. And the general rule with highway expansions is it does alleviate traffic for maybe the first year or two, but then it quickly falls prey to induced demand and becomes just as congested, if not more congested, as it was beforehand. Okay, well, what do we want? Do we want to be sitting in more traffic two years from now? Or do you want better bike lanes so we can actually travel through the city without having to own a car? It's, it's a feasible question that we need to ask ourselves when we look at the city budget. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we assume that, you know, road spending is just kind of set in stone. Nobody has to fight for it that much. There's always going to be a big pot of money there. We fight about how it's allocated, but the big pot is there and other ways of getting around typically involve, you know, more of a fight. It's not assumed that we're going to spend more money on it. Uh, although I will note, you know, the city is increasing its bond to fund more sidewalks and more um, bike infrastructure. So, you know, maybe we're starting to address that a little better. No, yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. When I was doing research before the show, I did note that in the the CIP, the Capital Improvement Plan, you know, there, there's a is the issue of pedestrian safety and cyclists. It is being addressed. You know, there are plans to rework the streetscape to make it a bit safer for people on the bicycle and walking. Um, again, the big issue though is that hey, you know, if we are currently labeled one of the deadliest cities for pedestrians is this a problem we really want to solve five years from now yeah i know it moves slow but at the same time if the political will is there this is something that we have proven we can actually make great progress on within the year within two years 
And hey, you know, the election cycle, I'm sorry, the, the primaries are coming up. This is definitely something to pay attention to when candidates are talking about this issue. Are they willing to move on this now? Or are they willing to move on this two years from now? And two years is an eternity in local government because we'll be uh, through another election cycle by then. Mm -hmm. And talking about politics and funding right now, I think the biggest big picture political question in transit and transportation funding is what's going to happen with the the one cent uh, sales tax, whether that's going to get on a ballot next year, what we're going to see happen with the silver line and light rail. So in the city's plan, which would total $13.5 billion roughly, um, most of that money goes to the silver line light rail, 29 miles long, biggest light rail project. Understandably, that's going to cost many billions of dollars. But I think we can spend a lot less on buses, which is something you've heard more about lately and have a pretty uh, big impact as well, maybe even a bigger impact in terms of people actually getting around the city. Um, do you think that we've left buses out of the discussion too much in Charlotte? And, and what's behind that? No, I, I think we have left buses behind the discussion for it. And generally, I think the reason for that is that, you know, when I talk to people about the bus network, it's just, you know, pardon if this is a bit crass, but it's just not a sexy transit uh, use for most people. You know, the light rail, you know, it's cool. It's sleek. You have, you know, all these like really interesting stations throughout the city that you can step onto it for. And, you know, it leads you directly into the heart of Charlotte. That's great. Um, the bus system though. Okay. You get on the cat's bus. You don't have a sidewalk there. You don't have a bench. You have to stand there. The bus picks you up. It takes you to the Charlotte Transit Center, which is, I like it, but at the same time, I recognize that it's a bit run down. Um, so imagine you step off there. There's like a overworked Burger King, a weird um, novelty gift shop, and then some Mint Mobile like phone shops there. And it's just, okay, you know, it's not the same impression Charlotte Versus, okay, you know, I just stepped off the light rail at the epicenter, or I stepped off the light rail at 7th Street Market, you know, all these different like things. So when people have the exposure to the bus system here in Charlotte, they just don't seem to have like the same takeaway with it. And then the other thing as well is that most people, they value the light rail. When they move to Charlotte, they do tend to try and move closer to the light rail and use that. And I noted that myself when I started to use the light rail back in 2018, I had a bus stop right in front of my apartment and I never once used it. But what I did do, I would walk the mile and a half to get to the light rail and use that just because it took me directly to the school. Um, but at the same time, you know, I also just didn't know how to use the bus. And what people will try and do is they'll try and figure out, okay, you know, how can we advertise our buses better? How can we work with that? But the more I use the bus system here, I think the more that we have realized that, you know, it's just set up rather inefficiently and there's this really good book it's called better buses better cities yes we actually um had someone write a review of that and posted it on our website i'll put a link to it in the show notes yeah yeah better buses better cities you know i always perk up anytime i hear charlotte pop up in any urban literature and i was really excited i got better buses better cities i hit control f and i typed in charlotte and it popped up three or four times. Was so stoked, so stoked to kind of read through that. 
And then when I found it, it was uh, under chapters for inefficient systems. And that was really disheartening, but it definitely kind of opened my eyes to it. So for instance, if you are paying with cash here at, you know, to use the cat's bus system, you have to pay exact change, $2, 20 cents. You cannot, uh, you know, pay the bus driver five bucks to change back or anything like that. Uh, there's no way to make change for that. And, you know, you have like a whole host of issues where, okay, you have people reporting, hey, I had to step into this corner store, you know, exchange 20 bucks for this, ask specifically for $2.20 and change, step onto the bus. It wouldn't accept my $1 bill for this. It wouldn't accept my $1 bill for the other one. It becomes this weird hurdle where you're waiting for two minutes just for someone to have their $2.20 of change processed. Um, the other thing as well is that the layout is just, to be quite frank, confusing. Um, so for instance, like the 29 bus route, I was talking to some people about, Hey, you know, what's a safe way for me to get to, you know, the Charlotte VA center up in university. And they said, Oh, just take the 29 bus. You know, I, I was looking at it, but it didn't really make sense because I went on the bus and it took me to UNC Charlotte, but nowhere near the campus. And then they told me, Hey, no, it'll only take you to the VA center if you're on the inbound route or the outbound route. So you have to do this and it adds another like hour to your like travel time. And it's just really unfortunate. I think the other thing as well is that just the travel time compared to if you were like situated in the light rail is so long. Uh, when I was um, dating my wife, I remember she worked in South Park and I was up in the university area. So I would occasionally take the bus to go down to see her. And it would quite literally take like an hour and 45 minutes just to get down here. Um, whereas if I had the bicycle, like it literally took me only an hour. It, granted, that doesn't sound like that much of a difference. But at the same time, you know, that, that's a pretty big time commitment to yeah, especially get Especially when you make it a round trip. Yeah, especially when you make it a round trip. And, you know, it's just a thing where, okay, you know, the bus system is not set up efficiently. It has all of these things stacked against it, such as poor design, just an inefficient like route system. But the reality is, is that if you want an effective transit system, buses are a great tool for that. They're insanely flexible. If you find out that a route isn't being serviced that much, hey, that's great. You didn't have to spend money on a rail line here. Literally just change the routing. If you want to have the you know bus have to like lane priority, you can paint the lane and have that whole thing just situated as be a bus only lane, which we had on Central Avenue. It was a really cool project. It was really popular with transit riders. It definitely sped up the service of the bus. But then the issue is just, okay, you know, people voted against it when it came time for it. And I think we don't understand that, you know, when we make the step to have something as bold and simple as a bus only lane, and we don't commit to it, you know, you really harm our transit projects in the meantime. The other thing as well that really becomes a big issue is just the light rail, it's frequency. You know, it's not bad. It's roughly, is it 20 minutes now or is it 15 minutes? I think they just increased it to 15. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing like, I want people to like understand is like, okay, you miss the light rail station or you get on the wrong you know, side of it, which I've seen people do. Um, okay. Hey, that happens. You get off of it. Or, you know, you wait for the next train to show up. You're only waiting maybe 15, 14 minutes. That's not that bad. You know, we, you can be, you know, 15 minutes late to work and it's not going to be a big deal as long as you let people know. Or, you know, if you're showing up early, hey, you know, that's great. You know, now I'm on time or 
all these other different aspects of it. The issue, however, is with the cat to bus systems, you miss that bus, you're going to have to wait 30 minutes. And this is something that I've seen a lot when I talk to people throughout the city, because, you know, if I see someone at the bus stop, I'll usually pull over off of my bicycle and I'll talk to them. Hey, you know, you're out here, you know, what's something that would make this transit system better for you? You know, what are some issues that you have? And without a doubt, the biggest thing I hear for most people, one is when the bus doesn't show up, that can be day ruining. And then two, the route frequency is just so dismal, 30 minutes. You miss that bus, that's another 30 minutes out of your day. Or if you have a connector bus, say for me, I would have to take the Route 3 bus and then get off to get on the Route 29 bus to come to UNC Charlotte. If the Route 3 bus is running maybe three, four minutes late, which, you know, if you have someone trying to pay that specific $2.20 on the bus, that can definitely take that time up. Okay, let's say the Route 29 bus, you know, goes past its stop. Route three finally gets there and then I step off. Now I have to wait another 30 minutes because the bus wasn't there on time. And that goes from, hey, you know, I was on time to I'm going to be 30 minutes late. What can I do? We need to understand that, you know, this can be somewhat alleviated with higher route frequency. How much of this do you think gets back to the fact that as you're talking about different routes and different um, issues of riding the bus, there's just a lot of people in the city and a lot of decision makers who probably can't even relate to that. Uh, You know, I, I drive most places in Charlotte, candidly, I don't ride the bus. And I was thinking while you were talking like, boy, I just don't have a geographic frame of reference. You know, he's, he's really describing a reality that is um, different than the reality I inhabit as someone who is able to own and operate a car uh, for most places. You know, how much of our struggles with, having an effective bus system, do you think gets back to that? Because I I just keep thinking, you know, when there are parts of the road system that don't work well, we hear about it all the time and someone generally does something. Well, yeah. And I think the big thing is that, you know, you run into the issue as well, where when you are using the bus here in Charlotte, it's not typically because you like to use the bus. Let me just lay that out for you. That is the unfortunate reality here that Charlotte's bus system is just so underfunded and broken that the people that are using it are the people that need it to survive, not because they enjoy it, but they need it to survive. Granted, there are some times where, okay, you know, we took the bus because this was going to make it a little easier for going somewhere like We'll go to the Albemarle Road park and ride me and my wife, and then we'll take the bus to go to Camp North End or to Uptown because we don't want to have to figure out the parking situation. But for most day-to-day stuff, you're just not going to be doing it unless you absolutely need it to get to work. And if that's the case, you're usually pretty poor to begin with. My example is I remember when I was working at Chick-fil-A, there was one person, she had to take two bus changes, um, and she only made $10 an hour. And, you know, that was relatively okay pay at the time, but at the same time, it's only $10 an hour. You're working two different jobs. You're only making, you know, 20 hours a week at this one and you're working 30 hours a week at the other job. You're not making much. And it's just one of the things where if that is also the limitation that you have, that you're poor, you're working all these odd hours, when are you going to actually be able to have the time to go down to the city council meetings and talk to people, especially with most of these jobs that most people that are using the bus system are going to, 
their their housekeeping jobs, their food service jobs, their service jobs that typically are not on the tip of the usual nine to five job. If I tell my boss, hey, I would love to work today, but I have to go down to city council at 5 p.m. on a Monday to go and attend this meeting, let them know about this, and then I have to come back to you know work the rest of my shift, they're just not going to approve that, especially with, okay, all right, hey, you can do that. All right, how long is it going to take? Well, it's going to take me an hour and a half by the bus to get there. It's going to last you know, an hour, and it's going to take me another hour and a half to get back. You just cannot afford that. You literally, as a person in poverty, cannot afford the time for that. And, you know, I've talked to some of the people about this as well. It's like, hey, you know, some of the surveys you guys have, you know, it's really great that Katz is trying to reach out to the community, but at the same time, you, they just, there's this weird disconnect where I don't think people understand what it's like to actually be in the working economy and how to reach out to people in that regards. And that's something I've been really careful with when I've been working with people in the community is, hey, you know, I know you may be working, you know, 2 to 11 p.m. today. Um, when can I meet you beforehand? Do you have time afterwards for me to come talk to you about these issues? Okay, you know, you have a lot of stuff on you. Here's how you can contribute to what we're doing virtually at the very least. Or let me give you this stuff like a month out in advance so that you can actually get the time off with your boss to do it if you need to. But yeah, that's just the, the, the sad reality is that just a lot of our city planners and leaders do not understand what it is like to be poor. And if you are poor, you have a horrendous time making your voice heard so zooming out big picture um are you optimistic about the direction we're moving in a city as we look at questions of transit and transportation how to build in more urban and equitable patterns i mean as you see these these big questions how are you feeling you know, honestly, Eli, it's, it's one of those things where I am kind of scared, uh, but optimistic at the same time. Uh, the reason for that is, you know, we're poor and we are gradually being pushed out of the city. Um, it used to be that I could afford to live, you know, like 15 minutes from UNC Charlotte. Um, but now it's becoming to the point where, okay, you know, I'm getting pushed out further and further that that 15 minute trek is now a one hour bicycle ride. And I know that we're doing a lot to try and alleviate that by building more housing and doing more by building parking free housing and all these other like items. But at the same time, you know, I'm worried that if we can't stay within, you know, for instance, if the rent raises up like another like $300, we just won't be able to afford to live in Charlotte anymore and we'll get pushed out entirely. And that, that's the big thing that, you know, really like is scary for us is we want to stay here. We love the city. We love the people in it. We have family here. We have roots that tie us down. But at the same time, it is just becoming increasingly more expensive to live here and increasingly difficult. And there are parts where it is optimistic to see more housing being built, um, especially like, you know, some affordable units and some more units that they try and capture the luxury market so that I'm not having to compete with someone that's making an 80 K salary um, for my like run down, like one bedroom apartment. But at the same time, you know, I know that takes time and you also hear a lot of blowback, like the parking free housing complex or the apartment complex. I was a really big fan of that. And when you look at how cheap and inexpensive that is compared to the other luxury units in that area, 
it's a really good deal. But at the same time, it got shot down so viciously um, in the media and, you know, comments from local citizens and everything else like that. It's just really kind of discouraging to see that and think that, okay, you know what, maybe that's going to actually discourage this kind of development. Uh, Yeah. I mean, so we'll see how it goes the next five years. Um, I think that's really going to determine a lot of it. But, you know, the other thing that I'm noticing here on my end is that a lot of the people I went to college with, they saw Charlotte and it just wasn't for them and they left. I think that's the thing is like, okay, you can build up a lot of great talent here, but you know, currently the reality is that unless you're a banker or in software, there's just nothing much here for you. And people just leave the city entirely. That needs to change. That definitely needs to change. So final question, as we wrap up here, if you were uh, emperor for the day, King of Charlotte, whatever it might be, if you could change anything in Charlotte, anything about the city, uh, what would it be and why? Oh, man. So I, I really thought about this for a long, long time. And honestly, this is going to sound just super simple, but zoning. It would, would easily 100% be the zoning. And I know we're working on that with the, the UDO, the Unified Development Ordinance. But when you look at it, it is not as radical with changes. I thought it would be, um, especially when it was initially sold to me. I think the only thing it really does is it just kind of, you know, codifies on the map. Hey, this is a certain type of neighborhood. You can build a duplex here if you want to. This is another certain type of neighborhood. You can build a triplex here if you want to. This is a community center. Um, It doesn't really do all that much. And the reality is when that got passed, I was really excited. I was thinking to myself, this is perfect. Now, if someone wants to, they can open up a small little corner shop in their neighborhood, live above it if they really want to. But the reality you see is that, well, no, like this is still going to be largely single family houses. You know, the only benefit from this uh, change is that you can now possibly live in a duplex if you want to. That's great. But, you know, at the same time, when you look at that, most people, when they criticize the duplex, the triplex and the quadplex, they do so on the grounds that, you know, this is just going to increase traffic here. And in this case, I think they might actually be right. If you only allow for a duplex to be built, but you don't for allow for something within walking distance to be built as well. Yeah, no, that's it's just going to add more traffic. And I, I think our city planners need to understand that you cannot have higher density housing, but still zone as if it's suburbs. You need to make sure that people can actually build the stuff within walking distance. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. You can't build higher density and zone it like a suburb. Where can people find out more about uh, you and what you're doing? Well, so I'm pretty active on Twitter. So you guys can find me at jholmeslives. Um, We also have the Charlotte Urbanist Twitter, which I am highly going to recommend. It's not just me working on that, but it's a ton of people. That's just CLT underscore urbanist on Twitter. Uh, the big thing as well is that, you know, we just try and be out there as much as possible. So we're going to be organizing a pretty big group ride on May. So you guys will probably see us pop up in the media around that time as well. John, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it. Eli, it was a genuine pleasure. I do wish you the best of luck as well. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate it, share it with your friends. 
keep looking to the future, Charlotte.